In today's episode of Zen 15 Mills, what can we learn from one of the oldest people to ever earn a doctorate? Also, we just got 30 gigs worth of photos and videos sent back to us from Mars. Why should we care? Then, what's it like to wear a dead person's face? All of that plus today's secret link, the feel-good feature track, and some words of wisdom from Henry Ford is coming at you right now. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 18 of the 750 Mills Podcast, the show that's all about bringing you good news, interesting stories, and genuinely useful things. No, I'm glad to have you here with me. My name is Andre, and we're going to talk about a story involving one of the oldest people to ever achieve something that's academically impressive, but ultimately it's something both you and I can really learn something from. Then, there's the Mars rover story and what that really means for all of us here on Earth being able to expand further out into the solar system in just the next decade, starting in 2024. And finally, there's this thing about face transplants. Literal, full face transplants. IRL, not fiction. What's it like and why does it even matter? Why does anything matter really? Why does this podcast exist? Let's just get into it anyway. I'm too old for this. I'm too set in my ways to change. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. Ever hear people you know say stuff like that? Have you ever caught yourself thinking that way, even if you're not really that old? Not really sure what it is that makes a lot of people resigned to the idea that once you reach a certain age, any improvement of any sort seems less and less likely. Kind of strikes me as more of an attitude thing than anything that actually has to do with the human mind or body as they are. I mean, sure, you get physically weaker as you age, but to what degree has to do with your lifestyle decisions? And I strongly believe that similarly applies to how healthy your mind is. Case in point, just recently, a 104-year-old Colombian man named Lucio Caicedo, or Chiquito to his friends and family, just completed his doctoral thesis at the University of Manchester, which is about determining the maximum amount of water that can be sustainably taken from a river. He's set to become one of the oldest people in history to earn his doctorate. Lucio was born in Cali, Colombia, and lived there for 84 years before moving to Medellin in Colombia's Antioquia province. He received a bachelor's degree in civil engineering at the National University of Colombia at Medellin, then earned a master's degree in science and technology from the University of Manchester in England around 70 years ago. About three decades ago, when he was 73 years old, he wrote to the university saying that he had a master's degree in science and technology and asked if he could apply for a doctorate. They said, sure. Apparently, he's been working on this thesis for 30 years. And he admits that the COVID-19 pandemic sort of enabled him to actually just focus on finally getting this done. So, on the 21st of September 2020, he sent it in. And as of the most recent reports I've been able to get my hands on so far, he's waiting to defend his thesis once the panel is able to convene. This guy had to write about 170 emails over 25 months to clear things up about his work, and he thinks it might take even more before everything is said and done. Now, I know some people who still have to ask a niece or nephew for the Wi-Fi password instead of just flipping over a small plastic box and reading the sticker on it to get it themselves. Can you hear me shaking my head? 
I'm just imagining this 104-year-old dude maybe hearing 70 or 80-year-old people saying, too old to learn or too old to do this, and then him just going, get good, scrub. In Spanish, of course. It's really an attitude thing, isn't it? Speaking of attitude, Lucio said a few really interesting things that gives us a bit of insight into what informs his perspective on things in life. Quote, El que pierde la mañana, pierde el día. Y el que pierde el día, pierde la vida. End quote. Roughly translated, he's saying, He who loses the morning, loses the day. And he who loses the day, loses life. He also quoted an Israeli poet whose name he no longer remembers, saying, quote, Si tú no trabajas con amor, deja tu trabajo, y siéntate a la puerta de tu casa, a esperar la limosna de los que trabajan con amor. End quote. Again, roughly translated, he's saying, If you don't work with love, leave your job, sit yourself down at your house's door, and wait for the alms of those who work with love. Wise words for us to take to heart. Make the best of the time you have and try to put a little bit of love into what you do, best I can make out of it. Just a few days ago, something really cool happened. NASA's Mars Perseverance rover finally made its way down to the red planet after traveling through space for about seven months just to get to the nearest thing the planet Earth has to a little brother, if there ever was such a planet. It was launched on July 30 of last year and landed on the 18th of February this year. It sent back over 30 gigabytes of data, which includes over 23,000 photos, of which, and as of writing this episode, NASA has released over 4,400 raw images of the rover and the red planet to the public, along with video clips of the descent onto the surface of Mars. Now very quickly, why should you care? Well, if you've listened to the second episode of this podcast, you'll know that we can thank humanity's constant push to explore outer space for a lot of the cool stuff you and I are using right now. Everything from the AirPods you keep losing one of, to the retro Nike Airs that people are actually okay with paying a third of their monthly paycheck for, for some reason. So check out episode 2 and maybe send NASA a thank you tweet or afterward or something. I know we eventually get a lot of the trickle down of space tech in terms of the cool stuff we get to use and own here on Earth, but... Just the idea of exploring new places and discovering unknown things is exciting to me. Some people like going to Times Square, getting your picture taken with a half-naked cowboy, and shoving an overpriced corn dog in your face. I like the idea of being a space tourist, exploring a barren desert of a planet, and facing potential death by radiation poisoning, maybe choking to death on carbon dioxide like Matt Damon in that movie. NASA officially has four goals when it comes to why they want to explore Mars. One. They want to find out if life ever existed on Mars. They're looking around for traces of water, heat energy, and carbon, a key element needed for life as we know it. Two, they want to learn about the climate on Mars. They want to gain a deeper understanding of the melting and freezing polar ice caps on the planet, along with the dust storms that are a constant feature of Mars. Three, they want to learn about the geology of Mars. How did stuff on Mars form? NASA also points out that the biggest volcano in our entire solar system is on the red planet, the Olympus Mons. And four, they want to prepare the way for human beings to go to Mars. They're constantly digging in and doing the research and developing the tech that we need to eventually send a manned mission to Mars. Question is, who gets to do that first? NASA, a government agency, or a private company like Elon Musk's SpaceX? Astronauts and space scientists get to play with all the cool toys first. 
You think your Samsung phone with its five cameras and its pretentiously marketed space zoom is cool? Perseverance has 23 cameras, and all of them are literally in space. This Mars mission also has another historical first. The very first powered flight on a planet other than Earth will be attempted. And this is thanks to the little helicopter that NASA named Ingenuity, which hitched a ride to Mars with the rover. It's a tiny solar-powered helicopter that weighs about 4 pounds, or about 2 kilograms, and they really want to add an aerial aspect to this whole exploring Mars thing just to make checking out hard-to-reach areas like cliffs, caves, craters, and just act as scouts that would help future humans and robotic explorers, not just on Mars, but potentially on other celestial bodies in our solar system. Everything we're developing for Mars will have an impact on how much further we can push out into the solar system and how soon. By the way, NASA has a timeline for all the stuff they want to do in the next few years. By 2024, the first woman, and the next man, will land on the moon, thanks to the Artemis program. By 2028, they want to establish a moon base of sorts, in their words, a sustained human presence on the moon. These two steps are seen as critical stepping stones towards sending human beings to Mars and beyond. The last human being to step on the moon was Gene Cernan from the Apollo 17 mission from way back in 1972. Remember what they were saying about the equipment they used back then? Your iPhone today is far more advanced than the equipment they used to shoot themselves into space, not die while on the moon, and come back to Earth in one piece. You have a touchscreen computer with multiple times the computing power and access to all the world's knowledge in your pocket. Back then, they just wrote in an oversized toaster with a lot of rocket fuel in it. The next manned mission to the moon will have newer tech to bring along with them. New and updated vehicles, next-gen spacesuits, and actual modern computing equipment. I'm quite curious to see how modern computers will impact how they do stuff out there. I love, <laughs> I love to see somebody using a Windows laptop just for kicks and just getting a blue screen of death or something. Or how about astronauts, also just for kicks, bringing along a bunch of different phones like an iPhone and a few different Android phones. Just go with me on this argument and just doing stuff with them on the moon and see how they hold up outside of Earth. I'd love to see a few Instagram stories, maybe reels, straight from an astronaut on the moon's account. I mean, NASA's already pretty generous with the stuff they put out on social media. You never know. Hey, you want to buy the exact same camera, or at least one of them, that the Perseverance Mars rover used to send us all those photos and videos? You can if you wanted to, apparently. NASA's lead engineer for the rover's camera system, Dave Gruel, said that you can buy the same camera off the internet, which is made by an imaging company named FLIR Systems, that's F-L-I-R, and NASA didn't really do much to modify them. 2024 is just a couple of years and changed away. 2028 too. Plus, this is just NASA we're talking about. You never know what advances in space-related tech companies like SpaceX will come up in the interim. Personally, I can't wait. Hey everyone, just taking our usual break midway through this episode for a few quick updates here and there. And I have an ambition to make. I was supposed to have launched a few extra things for you guys this month, but I got this odd chest infection that's taking its time to go away completely. And it's been a bit harder than usual to make stuff, or breathe properly for that matter. So there have been some delays. Long story short, new updates delayed, but still forthcoming. Big updates, including maybe an extra episode maybe even video, 
all of which I'm hoping to finish and launch before March ends. That said, I'd like to invite everyone listening in, present company included of course, who haven't yet done so, to check out the official Telegram and Minds.com channels if you want to keep on top of updates, as well as getting the usual extra stuff like audiograms, though that's been more of a Minds thing lately. You can find links to all of these places by going to www.750ml.fm and clicking on the subscribe link that you can find on the page. That's really it. You're all welcome to drop by the channel, subscribe to them even, and say hello. Anyway, back to the episode. Would you ever have any plastic surgery done for yourself? There are many reasons why people might consider doing that sort of thing, ranging from vanity to reconstruction of some sort after suffering through an accident that may have been pretty bad. A lot of people with money to burn would probably be more open to the former, and those who might not consider it for vanity's sake would probably fall more into the latter part of the equation. Let's rejig the question to, what if you were forced to have such a surgery, and what if that surgery meant having your face replaced completely with the face of a recently deceased person? The why part of reconstructive surgery and even partial or full facial transplants is actually fairly straightforward and easy enough for us to wrap our heads around. People who suffer through accidents severe enough to require these usually end up with difficulties functioning normally and take a big hit in terms of the quality of their life. Simple things we take for granted, things like smiling, talking, eating, drinking from a cup, or even breathing on your own, can be severely impaired or even undoable without major surgical intervention in certain cases. Well, here are a few examples. Around the early 2000s, a then 20-year-old Mitch Hunter from Indiana was a passenger in a car that crashed into an electrical pole with a 10,000-volt electrical cable. He survived. He tried to rescue another passenger, but he got a blast from the electrical cable, which led to him losing a leg and having most of his face burnt off. He survived again, but imagine how life would be like for you to not have a face. In 2018, Joe DeMeo from New Jersey was driving home from a night shift job when he fell asleep at the wheel. His car crashed, burst into flames, and he suffered third-degree burns on over 80% of his body. His fingertips were amputated, and he lost his lips and eyelids. Just imagine trying to function without those things. No fingers, no lips, no eyelids. What things that you used to do can't you do anymore? You might need to make a list, unless you're also not able to make a list because you get the point. Dr. Frank Pape, chairman of the Dermatology and Plastic Surgery Institute at the Cleveland Clinic, said this, quote, Can you live without a face? Yes, but it's very difficult and not a good quality of life. Having a face to face the world is probably one of the more important functions we have as human beings communicating with each other. End quote. We'll get back to Mitch and Joe further on, but this just underlines the why aspect of the conversation. What's involved in facial transplant surgery? It's complex and it depends. But first, let's just clear things up. Facial transplants are different from reconstructive surgery, or plastic surgery as it's more popularly known. It's best not to confuse the two as being one and the same, although I can imagine they may sometimes overlap and complement each other somehow. When we say reconstructive surgery, it can mean transplanting tissue from other parts of your body onto the damaged part of your face. Facial transplants mean either partially or fully taking another person's face, a deceased donor, and surgically connecting it, nerves, arteries, muscles, and bones and all, 
onto the recipient. If you've been thinking about it, if you receive a facial transplant, it pretty much means you will be wearing a dead person's face. In general, doctors would prefer donors and recipients to be young and of the same sex. One interesting thing is that some computer reconstructions suggest that a female face transplanted onto a male would actually look alright, although there doesn't appear to be a record of this being tried yet. Facial transplants are complicated procedures that can take anywhere between 8 hours to 3 days, and this isn't counting the amount of time patients might need to take in recovery. It involves altering and adjusting old and new bones that need to fit with each other, microsurgically connecting old and new blood vessels to one another with threads that are just about as thick as a human hair, making sure muscle tissue is set right, and a few other things. I'm obviously oversimplifying this, so forgive me if I've gotten anything wrong or maybe skipped over a step or two. It can involve dozens of medical professionals from a variety of specializations like anesthesiology, bioethics, dentistry, ophthalmology, endocrinology, infectious disease, psychiatry, pharmacy, and transplantation medicine, just to name a few. If it sounds seriously complicated, that's because it really is. Not only do these guys have to make sure they get the job done right over the hours and possibly days of surgery that they have to do, but they have to coordinate with so many people to get it as right as they possibly can for the sake of the patient they're trying to help out. Now here's an interesting side bit. These guys get to practice before the actual operation. Just how exactly do you practice doing a facial transplant? That's where modern tech comes in, specifically something called HoloLens. HoloLens is a mixed reality smart glass kit designed and made by Microsoft that you strap onto your head and it lets you see and work in a visual environment that contains both everything you can see around you along with computerized digital stuff being projected wherever you look and you can naturally work with anything you see with your hands. Basically, if you wear HoloLens, the current room you're in, whether you're at home or at the office, can become the background where you can put digital objects and do work in, hence the term mixed reality. For example, if you're an aircraft engineer, you can just sit at your desk, wear HoloLens, and you can see and work on a digital version of an aircraft or maybe its engine with your hands. You can spin it around, zoom in, zoom out, pick it apart, put it all back together, study it piece by piece, repair it, learn more about it, and you don't even have to be in an aircraft hangar with an actual airplane or engine to be able to do all of that. Or if you're an architect, you could look at an existing building, overlay a schematic or a diagram over the actual real building that you're looking at in that very moment and see how the real thing matches up with the plants you drew up side by side or maybe on top of each other and maybe you could plan new additions to the building, virtually building things on top of the actual building while you're looking at it. There's so many applications for this tech, and a lot of industries stand to benefit from it. You can use it to train people to do complicated things that could be financially or physically risky in real life, or at least if you're using the actual physical things, especially if one mistake could mean failure with the risk of injury. Think really critical mechanical or electrical failures, or maybe even something like bomb disposal. It can help you make work more efficient overall and minimize errors and minimize wasting resources. And if you have the money to burn, you can also use it to play Minecraft in real life in your living room if you wanted to. It's better to show than tell, so make sure you check out the show notes so you can see all of these things we're talking about right now. Put some video clips in there. Back to the question, how can medical professionals use virtual reality, or more specifically, 
mixed reality to make surgical procedures like facial transplants safer, more precise, and more efficient. Well, for the patients that the Cleveland Clinic worked on, what they did was to take CT scan and MRI information and make it usable within HoloLens. The surgical team would then use HoloLens to work in the mixed reality setting by overlaying a 3D version of the donor's anatomy onto the patient receiving the facial transplant. The surgeons would interact with this holographic projection to match up the donor's facial anatomy with that of the patient receiving it, making adjustments and making sure everything is in its proper place virtually, and using this wealth of information that's been put together in a really useful way, both visually and more, to inform either a mock practice surgery or to assist in the actual surgery itself as it's going on. But what's life like for the people who get facial transplants? The easiest thing for most of us to think about would be that some of these folks are wearing somebody else's face. I know, I've been saying it all throughout this segment. I know that's what my mind defaults to. But there are deeper, more meaningful implications to this beyond that. Like what Dr. Pape said a few minutes back, it all has to do with quality of life. So back to Mitch Hunter. What was it like for him before the facial transplant? Well, to say the least, he was unhappy and he avoided going out after the accident and after a few bouts of reconstructive surgery over the years, of which the results were rather mixed. Here's what he said in his own words. Quote, I've had kids hide and run behind their moms because they were so scared when they saw me. That was hard to cope with because my friend started having kids and then my brother had a kid. Then I had Clayton, that's his son, and I didn't want kids to be afraid of me anymore. End quote. In 2011, Mitch underwent a 14-hour surgical operation. The surgical team removed what was left of his old, reconstructed face, joined up the arteries and some nerves from his body to the new face, and finally the nose, the lips, and muscle were stitched into place. Dr. Bodan Pomahak, one of the doctors who operated on Mitch, said this, quote, The first sensation... I take it this means being able to fail things on your face again. The first sensation develops within a month or two. It's very crude, but it continues to improve, and in about 18 months, I would expect that Mitch is going to be feeling near normal. End quote. The people around him noticed. Mitch's brother wasn't sure how he would react, but when he saw him at the hospital after the surgery, he immediately recognized Mitch as his brother. Mitch's partner, Katerina, was asked by a BBC reporter if it was strange kissing the lips of a dead man, and she said this, quote, I had never kissed him with lips before. End quote. After the surgery, Mitch could feel these sensations returning, and he was starting to do things that he used to be able to do again. Things like raising his eyebrows and smiling, and he expected these improvements to continue. Again, here's Mitch in his own words, quote, I'm told when everything is said and done and finalized, I will look a lot like I used to, end quote. What about Joe DeMeo? Well, before his surgery, Joe suffered third-degree burns on over 80% of his body and lost his lips, eyelids, and fingers. He spent four months in an induced coma in a burns clinic, and he underwent more than 20 reconstructive surgeries, but still only regained limited use of his hands and face, and understandably so. Eventually, in 2019, Joe was referred to the face transplant program at NYU Langone. And thereafter, he became the world's first recipient of a face and a double hand transplant, undergoing a 23-hour surgery that involved more than 140 healthcare workers. How did it turn out for Joe? Well, he's now able to do more of the things he used to be able to do before the accident, like work out by himself and make himself breakfast again, among other things. 
Here's what he said about his experience. Quote, This is a once-in-a-lifetime gift, and I hope the family can take some comfort knowing that part of the donor lives on with me. My parents and I are very grateful that I've been given this second chance. End quote. Quality of life. For those of us on the outside looking into the experiences of these people, it may be primarily curiosity and fascination that drives what we think about the incredible medical progress that enables things like facial transplants and all, but for these folks, it means so much more, and in a deeper and more meaningfully good way. We now understand the reasons, and we get the upsides, but it's obviously not without cost, even considering things beyond the financial expense. Like other types of transplants, it's possible for people who get facial transplants to have their body reject their new face, considering it a foreign object, something that's harmful or damaging to itself. And this is the reason why recipients are put on a lifelong course of drugs that suppress their immune system, with the intent of stopping it from overreacting in a way that's harmful overall. The thing about that is, if you weaken your immune system in that way, it also increases your risk of infections of different sorts and developing conditions like cancer or kidney damage. It's a tough situation to be in, but that's the reality of life for some people. We talked about plastic surgery and how it's different from face transplants. Plastic surgery has been around since the early 1900s, but face transplants have only really come onto the scene in the mid-2000s. The very first face transplant was a partial one. And it took place on the 27th of November, 2005. A French woman named Isabelle Denoir received a partial face transplant after her original face was mauled by her dog. It's a weird story and accounts are kind of conflicting. Some saying that she had taken sleeping pills in an attempt to take her own life. Others saying she just took them to be able to sleep that night. But the next morning, the black Labrador appeared to be frantically trying to wake her up, unintentionally mauling her face. She wouldn't wake up because of the deep sleep the pills put her in, and the dog became more worried and panicked about her master, and got more frantic in her own attempt to wake Isabel up, causing the damage to her face accidentally. Her family genuinely believes the dog didn't mean to harm Isabel, but the dog was put down anyway, and Isabel was heartbroken when she recovered from her surgery and learned what happened to her dog. With respect to the face transplant itself, Isabel said she was happy with the results, though she struggled with it due to her immune system's response to it over time. The immune-suppressing drugs she took left her vulnerable to cancer, of which she developed two, and she eventually passed away in April 2016 at the age of 49. The first full face transplant took place in 2010 when an anonymous patient operated on for 22 hours by Spanish doctors in Barcelona received a full facial transplant after being shot, I'm guessing somewhere around the general vicinity of his face. On that note, it's time for this episode's feature track, something from 1992 in a band called Blind Melon, a song called No Rain. Written by Brad Smith, the band's bass player, here's how he describes the song and what it eventually came to mean for him. The song is about not being able to get out of bed and find excuses to face a day when you have really, in a way, nothing. It was like rock bottom. I wasn't even on drugs or drinking. It was just tough. It was just a tough point in my life. And the cool thing about that song, I think a lot of people do interpret those lyrics properly and can connect with it on that level where I don't understand why I sleep all day and I start to complain that there's no rain. It's just a line about, I'd rather it be raining so I can justify myself by laying in bed and not doing anything. But it's a sunny day, so go out and face it. 
Check it out in the show notes for this episode. This is episode 18, and you can find links to the Apple Music and Spotify playlists for all the featured tracks in one place. Plus, you can check out the B-Girl music video, chock full of 90s surrealism, for MTV anyway. And that is it for this episode of 750mls. Make sure you head on over to 750ml.fm to check out the show notes for this episode that has links to stuff we've talked about. That includes the featured track, along with this episode's secret link that lets you change how you see the outside world, literally. You can subscribe and listen to 750ml's podcast on podomatic.com, Spotify, Deezer, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever podcasts might be found. Just type in 750ml podcast in the search box and tap on the follow or the subscribe button, depending on what appears in there. Links to all of that will be in the show notes, and you can find that on 750ml.fm. If you've been enjoying it so far, please consider taking maybe just five minutes of your time, leaving a star rating and a review on the platform that you're listening to the podcast on. Your feedback helps improve the podcast and it can help other people find it as well, and I'd really appreciate it. Anyway, folks, thank you for hanging out with me, and I'll leave you with a thought from Henry Ford on the right way to look at failure. Here's what he said. Failure is simply the opportunity to begin again more intelligently. Hope you have a good day. Take care.